This podcast is sponsored by OMI, the company that makes CRM work. Today, we're speaking with Dominic Susek, CEO at Global Radar, to discuss their service and platform in the anti-money laundering and compliance space. Hi, my name is Dominic Susik. I'm the CEO of Global Radar, and we're here today to talk about money laundering, uh, anti-money laundering, and my experience in that industry. Dominic, when you tell people what you do, what is the first thing they say to you? Do they do they ask you for just a, a juicy story? Do they say like, you know, what what are you a, a, some sort of like finance cop? Like, what, what do they? <laughs> what do people say? It's actually a funny introduction because almost every time anybody asks me what it is that I do, my response is always, I'm in money laundering. And when people <laughs> hear that, they often say, what? They think that all of a sudden they've encountered a criminal. And then I always follow that up with saying that, well, I'm on the good side. We help catch the criminals. So my business is money laundering, but I facilitate the process of catching the ones that are actually involved in money laundering. And um, I get an interesting reaction because people at that point always find it very interesting because it's something that generally people are not experienced with, have very little knowledge about, other than what they've seen on television shows or movies like Ozark or other movies where they really have no concept of what money laundering is. But the first reaction when you tell people that you're in money laundering is they think they're dealing with a criminal. And then uh, they're happy to find out that I'm on the good side. Well, I have to ask, you know, as immersed as you are in this subject, is it just a matter of using, choosing to use your powers for good? Like, you know, could you, knowing what you know, could you, could you pull off the perfect financial crime, do you think? Or, or maybe, maybe you want to take the fifth on that one? <laughs> no, actually, I'm happy to answer that because I often tell people that really to catch the criminals, you have to know how the criminals work, how the criminals conduct business. And really, this all started from my career in banking. I was actually in banking for many, many years, and regulations have evolved over the years. I often tell people that I started in banking in what I refer to as ground zero for money laundering, and that's Miami. I grew up in Miami and started my banking career in Miami as a teller and evolved through the banking industry to the point where I became the COO and chief compliance and risk officer for a financial institution after many years of having worked through every aspect of banking. So I think that being in banking really helped me understand how the money moved in financial services, You know how banks actually worked, how the regulations impacted banking and the regulations have evolved over the years. I grew up, my first job in banking was in the early 90s. And really, it was really the infancy of technology and the infancy of regulations. The only regulations at the time were that banks were required to file currency transaction reports for anybody who was depositing over $10,000 in cash. And that was pretty much you know, the basis of how banks monitored unusual or suspicious transactions by essentially filing a form that would be submitted to FinCEN or the IRS saying this person has deposited $10,000 in cash. And from there, it evolved to really having regulators understand how money laundering work and they're implementing regulations that uh, really enhanced 
the requirements that banks had to now identify unusual and suspicious activity. And really, all of this started out in the 80s and 90s when the Federal Reserve did an analysis of all of the Federal Reserve districts in the U.S., and they tried to identify where most of the currency was located. And somebody realized that the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta had the greatest majority of cash in the entire U.S., and all of it was coming from the South Florida. And that's when they realized that the cocaine industry really was the, the industry that was driving a lot of the money laundering that was occurring. And so I think the, the money laundering regulations really evolved and grew out of, you know, the drug trafficking industry in the 80s and 90s, but then eventually evolved into the other aspects, because now I often tell people that money laundering really involves drugs. It usually involves tax evasion or fraud or other elements of financial crimes. And so drug trafficking is really one small element. But the evolution of money laundering really came about in the late 90s when legislators were trying to enact requirements that bank do customer due diligence to make sure that banks understand or understood who their clients were. And the, the legislation actually failed miserably because the legislation, you know, people thought it was too intrusive. Banks should not need to know people's business. They really didn't. It was not the bank's business to understand their clients or the types of transactions that they were doing. And so legislation failed miserably. But then 9-11 occurred. And then all of a sudden, they realize, oh, wait a second, it's important for people to know, it's important for banks to know who their clients are and what types of transactions are occurring. So after 9-11, within a year, they actually passed the USA Patriot Act, which was uh, which is the overreaching, the overarching regulation that really encompasses money laundering. And the segments of the USA Patriot Act, like the BSA, the Bank Secrecy Act, or OFAC regulations that are really, they all fall under the USA Patriot Act. But again, the USA Patriot Act was really dusting off of prior legislation that had failed. And then all of a sudden people realized it is important for banks to know this. And it was at that point that banks were actually deputized, what I refer to as deputized as quasi-law enforcement, because now it became the responsibility of the bank to understand who their clients were and to understand if the transactions that were occurring were legitimate transactions. And really what I tell people when I talk about money laundering, the role of the financial institution, and it's actually quite simple, the role of the financial institution is to identify possible unusual or suspicious activity. That's it. Dominic, that is a great sort of overview of the business and the state of the business right now. And I imagine that as technology continues to to develop and, and speed up, the risks increase, but also some of the, the surveillance techniques and the ability to counter those risks. I wonder if you could talk to me about what some of those threats are specifically. What are some of your customers, your clients observing? And then how are you helping you know, companies in, in various industries combat those risks? What I find interesting is in, in my prior comments, I talked about financial institutions. And most of the time, people think of financial institutions as banks. 
But if you follow the regulatory definitions of financial institutions, it actually encompasses 26, 27 different types of industries. And the industries are, as an example, banks, broker-dealers, insurance companies, credit unions, pawnbrokers, dealers in precious stones and metals. So when we, when you ask about our clients, we have clients in many different types of industries. We have banks, we have credit unions, we have insurance companies, and we have have, as an example, uh, an oil company in Dubai. We have a tire manufacturing company in the U.S. that is responsible. Both of these companies are responsible for ensuring that they understand who their clients are. And so it, when it comes to you know financial institutions or companies doing due diligence, it's not limited to banks monitoring their account holders. It's also a requirement of companies to understand who they're doing business with from a vendor perspective or who they're selling their services to, because there's a requirement globally that you can't sell you know, technology to certain countries, or you can't do business with certain countries that are on the sanctions list, like Cuba, as an example. So really, our software facilitates a process of giving companies the tool to be able to comply with regulations. And what's really fascinating about this, and this is what I tell people all the time, is these regulations, uh, they have different names from different countries, but they're essentially all basically the same, which goes back to what I said earlier, identifying unusual or suspicious transactions. But to give you some specific scenarios of what some of our clients do, you know, banks, they do transaction monitoring, they do risk rating, they do customer due diligence, but we have a very large client in London who processes insurance payments. And here we have a company in the insurance industry that is responsible for issuing claims checks to individuals. And as part of that process, they need to make sure that the people they're issuing checks to are not terrorists and that there's a legitimate reason for issuing these payments to these individuals. So that's an example of, you know, money laundering regulations and how it reaches into the insurance industry. One of our other clients is um, a payments processor in Ireland. They actually do the payments processing for companies that allow you to purchase things online. You go online to a website and you click check out, and then you put in your credit card information. Well, this company, Ireland, facilitates that payment processing process. And then what they do is, as part of that process, they actually reach out to us to see if the individual that is attempting to conduct the transaction is on a terrorist list. And so there again, we have different industries impacted by regulations, albeit they may have different names. We have many clients in uh, South Africa. One of the clients, as an example, is a property management company. They want to make sure that when they're leasing an office building to an individual, that this individual is not on a terrorist list or has not been previously sanctioned or involved in money laundering. Because at the end of the day, the insurance company in London, the payments processor in Ireland, the property management in South Africa, or the oil company in Dubai, they all bank somewhere. And they process payments, either issuing payments to vendors or receiving money from individuals who are purchasing their services. And they need to process that money through a financial institution. So they need to make sure that they can comply with regulations. Otherwise, if the bank finds out they don't, 
then they can be shut down. And that would impact the business significantly. Another example of what we are used for in our software is a very large amusement park in Central Florida. And there's another one in California. They actually use us as part of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act to make sure that the vendors they do business with have not had problems with foreign corruption. Many years ago, there was an article about Walmart. They were actually fined by the regulators for non-compliance with the FCPA because they were bribing officials in Mexico to have you know, stores in, in locations. So again, the FCPA is all part of the USA Patriot Act that really requires you to conduct business legitimately. If I can give you one quick example of money laundering cases that I've identified that might give you a small insight into types of money laundering that occurs. There was a bank in Miami who had a client that was actually a shrimp farm in Ecuador. And the shrimp farm in Ecuador was selling their shrimp in Europe, but they were transporting the shrimp through these cargo containers. And they were using this company to do the shipping and they were paying the cargo company $5,000 to do inspections per container. And then it turned out they were actually processing all these transactions through a bank in Miami. And through our system and through our analysis, we were able to identify that this Ecuadorian shrimp farm was actually using a Panamanian company to do the inspections. They owned the Panamanian company and they were overpaying the Panamanian company to do these inspections. And the reason they were doing this is to essentially move money out of the country by paying a foreign vendor exorbitant fees so that they would reduce the taxation within their country. And that's a very complex example of money laundering when people are attempting to avoid taxes by funneling money to companies that they may themselves own in other parts of the world. And that's just one example of money laundering. Now, that is so interesting. I'm coming to understand, this is probably obvious to someone in your in your space, but um, that it's not enough for, for a company to do business with the best intentions and then plead ignorance if they get caught working with a partner who is uh, maybe a little fishy or shady. They, they need to be proactive in looking out for that kind of thing. How can companies make sure that they are on the right side of the law, even if they are the victims in some sense or blind to what their partners are doing? It's interesting you mentioned the word blind because there's actually within the regulations, there's a term that they define as specifically willful blindness. And this is an example where an institution may decide not to ask as many questions as they should to really understand the depth uh, of information they would need to understand the business that they're banking. So, you know, there have been many instances where banks have been cited or fined. As an, as an example, Westpac in Australia was just fined $3.9 billion for noncompliance with money laundering regulations. And so really from a compliance standpoint, the regulations dictate to financial institutions how to behave. And the regulations specifically say you have to have a risk management officer and you have to have a compliance program, policies and procedures. You have to have technology in place to be able to detect unusual and suspicious activity. And then you have to report anything that you see. But invariably, some institutions fall short. Maybe they don't have 
the resources or they don't have the programs or they don't have the qualified individuals. Back in the early 2000s, there was uh, a bank in Miami, uh, Wachovia, that was actually fined tens of millions of dollars for noncompliance. And the reason that they were fined, one of the reasons that they were fined is the deficiencies in the compliance program, but they were found by the regulators to establish a program that met the staffing that they had, as opposed to establishing a program and backfilling the staffing. So Wachovia had X number of staff, and they had a program that was developed that staff could support, as opposed to developing a program and having the necessary amount of staff to manage the program effectively. And the regulators were very critical of them by saying that, you know, you can't establish a program based on the resources you're willing to put towards the program. You have to identify what the program should be and then place the appropriate resources to manage that process. So in as much as there are regulations, there are requirements, banks sometimes have their own interpretations of them, and sometimes they're not as robust as they can be. And that's when you see these large fines issued by these different regulators around the world for uh, noncompliance. That is so interesting. I was looking at your website, and I noticed a white paper on banking in the cannabis industry, which is a, a real gray area, right? Because uh, federal and state law often don't match up and sort of create create problems for companies in that space, I understand. And I wonder if you could use that as a jumping off point. What are some other areas that, that you guys are looking forward to? I would imagine that cryptocurrency is, is, is an area, like what's next for you guys, for the industry? And how far in advance are you thinking about this stuff? Is, is it enough just to, just to try to get a handle on what's going to come in the next year? Or are you looking 10 years out? What is the time horizon for you? At time horizon for us is 18 to 36 months. Really looking anything beyond that, the environment changes so frequently. And the, the tricks of the trade, the crimes, the criminal elements, they always come up with really fascinating ways to launder money. Banking cannabis, I think, is probably one of the most interesting aspects of money laundering because really, you know, you have states legalizing cannabis and yet federally it's illegal and banks are federally regulated. So what does the cannabis industry do with their cash? So what I think is fascinating is that there are certain credit unions and banks that are banking dispensaries in different states. Florida is interesting because the, they have a seed-to-sale policy for cannabis. You've got these dispensaries that are responsible for the growth all the way through to the sale. And then you have other states like Colorado who have different types of processes for selling cannabis. But at the end of the day, these cannabis businesses need to get their cash inside of a bank. Banks don't want to accept cash, but those that do actually have to report to law enforcement through this mechanism that's been created called the suspicious activity reporting process. They literally are reporting suspicious activity to law enforcement on a quarterly basis for these very clients that they're banking that are involved in the cannabis industry. But it's never as simple as banking a dispensary. It's also banking clients that are involved in the periphery of cannabis. And what I mean by that is there was a company that there was a bank I was working with that they were actually a uh, company that 
sold vaporizers or the smoking devices. They actually sold those vaporizers, the vape devices, but that's what the business that they did, but they actually sold to dispensaries. So they came into question, does a company who's receiving money from a dispensary or the cannabis industry, are they themselves one degree off or a second degree element of the cannabis industry? So the cannabis industry is a little more complex. It's a moving target. But another industry that's also evolving, and there's been quite a few articles that have been published about this, and I actually wrote a book on it, was Money Laundering Through Art. And the book I wrote, published last year, is actually The Art of Money Laundering. And again, Again, here's an example of the art industry being used to facilitate money laundering. So the industries are changing, they're growing, they're getting better. But one of the things that we're doing from a technology perspective internally is that there are really two facets of how we see our growth. First, continuing to understand the industry, continuing to make sure that the technology addresses the changes in the industry. But we're also incorporating now artificial intelligence into the process. And the artificial intelligence element is a critical, you know, element because as an example, I mentioned, you know, the insurance company, the insurance process, insurance payments processor in London, they process between 700 and 900,000 payments a month. And when you're processing 900,000 payments a month and you're screening every one of those names against a sanctioned party or a blocked party, there's going to be some possible matches. And so if you're processing 900,000 and you get 20,000 possible matches, you have to clear those 20,000 in order to allow the payment to be processed. And so we're incorporating artificial intelligence into our software to improve the process by which those names can be cleared. So artificial intelligence is definitely a way to go. And the second element of what we're doing from a technology perspective, and this is something we've done for many years, and continue to do is integrating with other providers. As an example, I'm very fortunate to be working with an exceptional company in Atlanta, oh my, that's helping us integrate with Salesforce. I think the key to our continued success is going to be integrating with other companies like Salesforce or, you know, the Fiserv's or the Jack Henry's or the Actimize or these different companies, because really the technology environment has changed. It's evolved, but the requirement to speak with each other is critical in this money laundering aspect in order to stay ahead of the criminals. Maybe this is obvious to you, but it's so funny to think about an organization like yours, which is so uh, just involved in this murky world of, <laughs> of financial crime. Also, you know, needing just the basic things that any business needs, like, you know, CRM, <laughs> you know, it's just a funny juxtaposition, I guess. But obviously it's true. Man, this has been so interesting. I got to say, as a soccer fan, the FIFA scandal in the last few years has been really interesting and, and I'm sure is, is on your radar. But it just really opened my eyes to the way that the U.S.'s position is the, the global reserve currency. I actually have a funny story about the FIFA scandal. I was actually I was actually intimately involved with an institution and what I found interesting is that this particular institution in Europe, exceptional institution, they actually were advised by the US regulators to surrender their license because of their involvement in the FIFA scandal. Now, what happened is that this financial institution was responsible for processing payments that were ultimately identified as being bribes. 
So what happened is that the institution was not involved in the FIFA scandal itself. They weren't involved in you know the transactions other than to facilitate the movement of the money between the parties. So they were essentially an innocent bystander. And this was a financial institution in Europe, but the U.S. got involved and essentially gave the financial institution an ultimatum that says, surrender your license and perform an analysis of all these transactions and identify anything unusual or suspicious and report it back to us. And we'll consider not filing criminal penalties or criminal charges against the organization. So the institution ultimately closed their doors. Uh, the, the institution essentially just surrendered their license. They agreed to surrender their license. And U.S. prosecutors decided to not file criminal charges against the institution. But I was always fascinated by the fact that the U.S. regulations had an overreaching capability to reach into a foreign country to an institution regulated by a different regulatory body and essentially required them to shut down. And what I found fascinating about that is that at the end of the day, all institutions are interconnected in one way or another. And if the U.S. were to blackball a financial institution in Europe, that institution would literally collapse from their inability to process payments. And so, you know, you mentioned FIFA, which I was always fascinated by that particular case. Our client was actually involved in this transaction, but they were essentially, like I said, an innocent bystander. But at the end of the day, maybe they didn't do the amount of due diligence that they should have done. But again, here you have money laundering involving bribery and the soccer industry or the football industry, if you speak to a European. <laughs> so it, t it touches all aspects of the environment, and people are completely oblivious to how reaching money laundering go can get. Yeah, so fascinating. So what is the lesson there for that company? What could slash should they have been doing that might have saved them from that fate? Really, it comes down to what this institution should have done or what all institutions are now facing the requirement to do is to do proper due diligence. And the perfect example would be a teacher, a local elementary school who may be depositing $20,000 in cash. Does that make business sense? And it may, if the bank can further identify that this teacher's husband actually owns apartment buildings and he rents to low-income individuals and only accepts cash for rent. So here we have an example where on the face of a transaction, it may look unusual or suspicious, but the bank has an obligation to investigate and identify if it is truly unusual or suspicious. And so in that particular instance, the bank should go back and say, what is this cash and does it make sense? And if the teacher responded to the inquiry, then it would make sense and the transactions would continue to occur. That's a very simple example. But then you have other companies like a pool company in Georgia that's purchasing chemicals for you know the pools. But then they have incoming or outgoing wire transfers to Egypt. And does that make business sense? And so really the financial institutions have to really identify the clients and who they're doing business with, what transactions are occurring to determine if those transactions make sense. And if they don't, they have to stop the transactions. And that's really the crux of the whole process 
in that the financial institutions, like in the FIFA scandal, they would have seen money coming in from an individual, millions and millions of dollars, and that money would have been going out to another individual. An analysis should have been determined as to the source of funds, what activity generated the activity that created those funds, and why is it going from this individual to that individual. And I'm not suggesting that that be done with every transaction, but when you're dealing with transactions in the tens of millions of dollars, that's when it's very important. And one of the things we haven't talked about, which is a critical issue that's been highly discussed in the newspapers, has been money laundering through real estate. Because you have these Russian oligarchs, you know, purchasing real estate in New York or Miami or California, and they literally are wiring tens of millions of dollars into a U.S. bank for the purchase of real estate. And it really comes down to, does that transaction make sense? What activity generated those tens of millions of dollars that were ultimately used to purchase real estate? Because really, part of money laundering is integrating illicit funds into a legitimate industry. That's really what money laundering is. Cleaning money, taking bad money and making it good. And so the bank's responsibility is to make sure that that process is legitimate. Dominic, tell us where people can find more about Global Radar. They can go to our website, www.globalradar.com. We have a lot of educational material out there, but we also communicate our products, our services, and the software that we have and what it can assist them with. So we, like I mentioned earlier, we have clients all over the world in many different types of industries. So they can go to our website and reach out to us through our contact information, and we'll be happy to speak to them. I often tell people that if they're interested in money laundering, just give me a call and I can tell them how it's done jokingly. But having said that, you know, I'd be happy to teach them what to look for. And so they can reach out to us on our website. 